We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast of St. Louis on the Air, brought to you by University College at Washington University. With undergraduate and graduate programs, part-time, evening, and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. It's Halloween, a day and night when being scared is part of the fun. Horror and suspense movies and television shows do good business during this season. Seems we like to be scared. We all have our favorite movies designed to do just that. It may be The Shining, The Exorcist, Psycho, or any of scores more. Why do we respond the way we do to these movies? I talked yesterday with a man who has studied our neurological response to such films. Jeff Zaks is a professor of psychological and brain sciences at Washington University. He focuses on perception and cognition and is the author of Flickr, Your Brain on Movies. I asked him what the difference is between suspense and horror movies and how we react to them. I don't know that there's a hard and fast distinction. Horror involves the components of being uncanny and of being um, scary in a way that's viscerally threatening, which is less characteristic of suspense. Um, Suspense tends to be more associated with being concerned about another character rather than feeling in your bones that you are a threat. You use the word uncanny. What, What do you mean by that? What is that? Yeah. So uncanniness is this situation where you have something that's almost like naturalism but deviated in some way. There's a a term, the uncanny valley, which was actually originated in robotics in the 70s, which refers to the fact that if you have something that's totally unnatural, like a cartoon character, it looks fine. If you have a real human, it looks fine. But if you have a humanoid thing that's not quite right, it can be, well, uncanny. It makes your skin crawl. Um, and a lot of the monsters in the movies are like that. They're either people who've been distorted in some way. Zombies, or, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, or just, you know, people gone off, real people gone off, or other things that are getting too human-like. Um, and that feeling of things being close but off, I mean, it's is related to this physical sensation of the skin crawling and prickling. Why do we react the way we do to these films? There are multiple mechanisms that evolved over a couple hundred million years to keep us safe. Um, And some of them are really fast and automatic and um, are physically based. So for example, we and lots of other animals are built to react quickly Um, to looming stimuli. So if something looming comes up in our visual field, uh, we retreat and we uh, cover our faces. Um, An infant will do this. Lots of other species will do this. On the other hand, an infant or uh, most other species are not going to react to um, uh, social threats that are verbally mediated in the way we are. That takes other kinds of socialization. It's one thing to react in, in a fearful way to a tiger that is approaching you. It's another thing, I would think, to react uh, in fear to a film. I mean, it's film. It's artificial. It's not a live tiger coming at you. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's perplexing about all of this is that films can drive us 
so strongly when it's manifest that nothing can reach up out of the screen and touch us, right? Um, there's an old line that I refer to a lot that comes from Wordsworth that says that, you know, in order to appreciate art and fiction, we need to engage in a willing suspension of disbelief. Um, but uh, my colleagues, um, uh, Richard Gehrig and, uh, and Diana Prentice said, you know, that's actually backwards. What you got to do is engage in a willing suspension of belief. Mm -hmm. These systems just fire away when you've got the characteristics of a compelling situation. And it takes a little something extra to differentiate real situations from fictive ones. Mm. What actually is going on in the brain? So at any given time, there's a tremendous amount going on. Your brain is chugging away, trying to keep you safe and happy and healthy all the time. And the world impinges on it and kind of pushes it in one direction or another. Um, a couple systems that are really important for the uh, experience of threat and horror and scare um, are the amygdala and the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. But there's no fear center in the brain. There's no one area where if you um, zap it, you'll experience a particular response uh, that is fear. It's a whole system that involves multiple parts of your brain and your viscera, your guts, um, and the rest of your body. What does it say about us as we look at a film and uh, someone is threatened? It's not us who's being threatened, but we are fearful and we are sympathetic to their plight. Yeah, sympathetic is a great uh, word for it. We have some of these fast automatic systems are um, built to to get us to act congruently with our uh, other humans in the environment. So if someone starts smiling, we have a tendency to smile. If somebody starts frowning, we have a tendency to frown. And if someone uh, starts screaming, we have a tendency to configure our bodies in a way that are congruent with that. And that configuration of our bodies is, is hooked up with the programs that uh, are associated with the subjective and neural components of a fear response. So mm -hmm. once you tap into the system by visually getting somebody to mimic, you tend to bring online the other parts of the system. How have these films evolved over the year? Do you know anything about that? I mean, they're certainly more sophisticated today than they once were. Yeah, sure. And I don't have numbers on this, but I'll bet they're out there. There, you know, there is a, there seems to be a general trend that um, things have become a lot more explicit and a lot gorier. Um, but there's also a bunch of really interesting technical things that that have gone. And there's classic experiments, you know, um, films like Blair Witch or Cloverfield experimenting with new ways of holding and moving the camera. There are changes in editing patterns that are have been brought across the industry that have affected horror. We cut faster and we um, edit in ways that were thought to violate rules 40 years ago. And of course, we've got the computer graphics now, which uh, just make anything possible. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So a lot of the um, a lot of the limitations which inspired creativity have been removed. They enable, you know, the removal of those limitations enables a bunch of new creativity. Why are we drawn to these movies? That is, I. That is just one of the big mysteries. Um, you know, you can describe some of the mechanisms by which it works, but for me, it's like spicy food. 
you know, if you put hot peppers on something and give it to a dog, the dog will approach it and then run away and not come back. We come back and we come back to horror movies and, you know, humanists have speculated about this, scientists have speculated about this, but I don't think there's a really good story as to why we do it. One of the things that uh, we started to talk about a moment ago with regard to the, the techniques that work and what have you, it seems to me that uh, with the computer graphics and all the rest of it, one of the big elements would be music. Let's listen to a little. I bet you most people will recognize all of this uh, we're about to hear. recognize them all? Yes. I'm ashamed to see the last one, uh, Halloween. Halloween, I've never actually seen, but I just read, I was inspired to listen to the music because I read an interview with Carpenter recently. He wrote the music for that film. He was on a ridiculously small budget and he just, he was a musician. So he went into the studio and just laid down a bunch of riffs and then without particular cues to what scene they were going to be in, and then cut them into the sound, into the movie in the editing phase. It's a really unusual way to write a soundtrack, and that soundtrack became famous. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, the other two, of course, were uh, Psycho, very famous uh, shower scene, and Jaws, of, yeah. of course. Yeah, and that theme, obviously, has been burned into the brains of America. They really have, and again, they have to be a really a principal part in creating whatever kind of a mood you want to create. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, affect is a profoundly multimodal experience. In the laboratory, if we want to make somebody happy or sad, the two go-to manipulations that we bring to bear are showing people movies um, and playing music for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's clear that they work that they work strongly together. I I was just rewatching The Shining and thinking about the first half of the movie without music would be this it would be the slowest and least suspenseful thing you could imagine. Um, we have a clip from The Shining which we'll play now and one of the I guess one of the most uh, frightening scenes in the movie is when Jack Nicholson is attacking the young woman, I think her name was Wendy in the film, and uses an axe to break down the door and uh, has one of the most famous lines, I think, in all, all the films at that point. We can listen. scene from The Shining, one of your favorites, Jeff. Yeah, and on the music front, one of the things that struck me when I went back to this is it has four or five of my favorite composers uh, in it, Bela Bartok, uh, Panderecki, um, and uh, the synthesizer artist Wendy Carlos, who did Hooked on Bach. 
but their pieces are manipulated subtly um, and sometimes not so subtly in ways that make them really um, eerie. And the timing and placement of those music cues does a tremendous amount through the first half of the movie to build this sense of impending disaster. Do movies like this reflect the times in any way? Oh, I think so. Um, uh, critics have written about The Shining, that you know, Kubrick's dramatization of it um, is dramatizing anxiety about the changing nature of masculinity in the early and mid-70s. And I don't think you can dismiss, dismiss those kinds of explanations. However, the, the, the ways that horror works on us, I think to be successful, have to, it, has to, it can't just be addressing a contemporary issue. It has to tap into these mechanisms that are evolutionarily conserved and are old and are fast and automatic. So you've got to get those things in congruence. Yeah. The uh, Halloween, the, the sequel is back right now, 35 years later, whatever it was, but it's number one at the box office. I wonder if today's world has anything to do with that. You know, horror doesn't get old. You can say maybe people are going uh, to horror right now because the world is so scary, but in happy times, you could say maybe people go to horror because they need more excitement in their lives. One of the striking things about people's use of film entertainment is if you ask people you know, why they're choosing something, they'll often cite some kind of mood regulation explanation. You know, I was in a bad mood, and so I chose this to get in a happier mood. Or I chose a sad movie because it was congruent with my bad mood. For a moment, let's just uh, change direction slightly and talk about the horror movie versus the romantic movie, the love story. What, how, how is that different in the way we perceive them? Obviously, the, the, the subject matter is different, but how is the brain dealing with these things? I mean, my view is that these different modes of film and these different genres actually have a lot more in common than they have separate. The, the basic mechanisms that uh, allow us to enjoy them involve, um, are, you know, they're the narrative mechanisms. And in particular, um, we have these uh, computational facilities to build models of an environment in our head. And whether it's horror or suspense or a rom-com, they trade on tweaking those mechanisms in ways that deviate a little bit from our normal experience. So in the case of a romantic comedy, you have you know this wish fulfillment that tweaks the world in one way. In the case of a horror film, you have this threat and um, and an avoidance of threat that tweaks the world in a different way. But I think that the main thing is it, it's allowing us to put ourselves into a situation that is unrealistic either because it's unsafe or it's just never going to happen. Yeah. I think of uh, movies of this type, though, in which people actually weep in the theater. So involved are they? Absolutely. Um, I've admitted this before in public. You know, I'm not a crier in real life, but I will cry at a sad movie, and it doesn't even have to be a good one. It's really embarrassing, but it illustrates, you know, the power of these fast, automatic mechanisms that are built to allow us to respond quickly and appropriately in diverse situations, and it speaks to the 
tremendous adaptation that film has undergone to just hijack these mechanisms and do stuff to us. I, I defy anyone to watch an affair to remember, for instance, <laughs> and not to have tears well up at that point. But enough about love and romantic comedy. This is Halloween, after all. Let's get back to uh, the horror movies and suspense films. Um, I've often heard that Alfred Hitchcock, who was a master in, of suspense, that his great trick was to allow the audience to see the threat before the person on the screen, the, the threatened saw it. Yeah, so Hitchcock had this um, uh, distinction between surprise and suspense. So um, in in an interview, he described, you know, if, if there's a bomb sitting under a chair and you know that but the character doesn't know that, um, then you're, you have a state of suspense. He also used surprise. So in Psycho, um, when the, when the uh, Janet Lee character is murdered, that's a very carefully set up surprise. And so he's using both surprise and suspense in that movie. Once she's murdered, there's a tremendous amount of suspense about how... Um, uh, Norman Bates is going to resolve the situation and then whether he's going to be caught. That's what really carries you through the rest of the movie. And once again, going back to the music, the music in that shower scene was, I guess, perfect for it. It, yeah. it has stood the t t test of time. Yeah, absolutely. Was Hitchcock the, the best at this sort of thing? Um, you know, I'm not the right person to, mm -hmm. to say who's best or not. One of the interesting things that he said about it, he was terrifically proud of the fact that he made the thing on an $800,000 budget and, it's, and it had made him, he was a producer, so it was his money on the line. He made him 15 million bucks. Um, he was a you know, terrifically pragmatic and a pragmatic filmmaker and he had great respect for the mass audience. He viewed selling a lot of tickets as an important mark of whether he'd done a good job. Um, and he said, you know, that the fact that I evoked an emotional response, a real response in so many people, that, that counts. That's what he was happy about. Do uh, any other directors or people behind the scenes and th these movies of this type come to mind that are, you know, stand out? Yeah, I mean, there are so many. Um, we were talking about The Shining a little while ago. Stanley Kubrick, you know, comes to mind as a famously, like Hitchcock, a famously precise controlling director who achieved these kind of sustained intervals of really intense experience. Um, you know, I, the one that stayed with me for decades um, is uh, Jonathan Demme's um, Silence of the Lambs. And he was a very... Um, diverse director you know he made lots of different kinds of movies from concert films to dramas to uh that film um but you know there's so many mm. i i go back uh, farther than you do and i remember as a kid watching a movie called the beast with five fingers with peter laurie it was just a hand that played the piano that's what it was scared the heck out of me but you know it was very basic again going back to the, how these things have evolved over the years that was pretty basic stuff. It wasn't anything like what we're, what we're doing today, but it still had the same capacity to frighten. Absolutely. You know, we were talking about how the technology has um, enabled new things. You know, it's the famous anecdote about Jaws that um, uh, uh, that they wanted to have a fancy uh, animatronic um, shark, and they just couldn't get the shark to work, mm -hmm. and so. 
so they had to do it all with with suspense and and stuff that's happening off camera. Yeah, and, and they would startle when the thing came out of the water. At one point, it was everyone went back. <laughs> Absolutely, and that takes us back to you know this looming mechanism. You know, if you just throw a big shape fast moving in somebody's face, they're going to mm-hmm. startle. Yeah, and of course, Jaws played another role in our society. It, it kept kept people from going to the beach, yeah. or at least going into the water once yeah, they got there. It, it really changed behavior. Let me just try one other thing with you, with regard to what goes on with the brain, and I think of. Uh, a way in which I grew up was called the theater of the mind, and that was radio. Uh-huh. And that was what you could see and what you could feel. You could be just as frightened and just as moved by the radio without seeing anything, just through hearing it. Look, I think the fundamental thing is this process of building uh, representations of events in your head. Radio is super interesting. Um, I, I, too, am a lover of radio uh, drama. But radio is super interesting because, you know, it's in some ways it's closer to text on a page. You don't have visuals, but you can have these movie the music cues and um, and you can do all the things that you can do with the human voice and you can have sound effects and the same um, a similar mechanism to these mechanisms that drive visual startle, you know, operate on audio cues so you can use that and of course horror films use these things in close conjunction you know Kubrick and The Shining um, has these music hits um, that are precisely timed that to the shocking visuals over and over again in that film. So Silence of the Lambs you think is the scariest uh, of the movies right? Yeah I mean I still can't go back and watch it again. It's just amazing the power that uh, the, the sound and the video uh, have over us. Yeah, though I'm, you know, I've I've been inspired. I think I will go back and rewatch that film after um, seeing The Shining again recently because because um, The Shining wasn't as scary as I remembered it now, mm-hmm. and so maybe I can make it through Silence of the Lambs again. Well, that brings to mind another point. I think the age at which you watch some of these things would definitely have some influence. Absolutely. Um, but I was, just to be clear, I'm old enough that I was an adult when Silence of the Lambs came out in, I believe, 1991. Um, and, but it, it still worked. But you're 27 years older now. <laughs> so maybe you'll look at it a little bit differently. Exactly. Jeff Zachs, author of Flickr, Your Brain on Movies. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.